This is Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams. I'm your host, Matt Purdue. Welcome back, guys. This is the Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast, where we discuss all things change. Today, we are going to talk about something, something somewhat universal, and it is the divinity of the human. Just that subject. And you'll see how this is going to fit into the compulsions of humans, because I'm going to basically paint a contrast of the carnality and the divinity of humans, or you might say the, the natural animal base of the human with something that is supernatural metaphysical maybe you might call it but something greater something that is even when i say divinity i don't mean just supernatural i mean godlike god ordained part of god spiritual i want to start with a discussion about how how humans are like just regular animals. And I don't know how long this is going to take me. I tried a couple times to record and it always goes over. So I may break this into two parts, but we'll go ahead and start and see how we make out. I took a class in college called animal behavior. It ended up being one of my favorite classes. And I could say probably as far as the many times as I've addressed and thought about it, my second favorite class. And obviously my favorite, I've mentioned a couple of times that sports psychology was my favorite course in college. And it could have had a lot to do with my professor. He was amazing. But the course material was fascinating as well. But animal behavior, the interesting thing about animal behavior is that I didn't need to take it. it I'd already finished all the stuff from my, I think I had like two more classes that I had to take to complete my degree. And I, so I had a bunch of electives to take. And a lot of times when you take electives, you end up with, you just take things that, oh, well, I don't need to take this. This sounds interesting. I'm going to take it. And it ends up being your favorite classes in college. That's not uncommon. And um, I don't know. I, I would say part of I won't talk about the failures of our public school or private school system, but I'll move on and say that I took animal behavior, not because it sounded interesting to me at the time, but because there was a girl that I knew was going to be taking the class because I had a buddy who was in the same degree program as her. And so I was like, I got an elective, might as well take the class. And what ended up happening was, is I had also another elective meteorology, which again was one of the more fascinating classes that I ended up taking, but I had it with the girl that I had a crush on her best friend. And this girl, she had a, like a four Oh, she was a, a nerdy act, right? She was out there and she took everything very seriously. And I think she was pre-med. And so I shrewdly adopted this quid pro quo um, idea that I would save a seat for her um, on the front row because I had like lunch or a break, huge break before I took this class. It was like at one o'clock 
And so I got there like 15 minutes early and secure a couple spots in the front row. Well, this other girl, she was coming from across campus, so she could barely make it in there before class started. And so she was super pleased that I'd save a seat for her. And then she in kind reciprocated and saved a seat for me in animal behavior, which coincidentally, I got to sit beside my crush the whole semester. Now, this didn't ever go anywhere, but at the time it was, it made the class much more intriguing. And I probably made me study more because I try to get into study groups with them as well. <laughs> so anyway, to the point of this whole podcast, that's one aspect of animal behavior right there. But then what we learned in this, in the class is that there are two points to um, all in the animal kingdom to their behavior. One is the mode of survival. It's like the impetus. It's either a conscious decision to try and survive. It's a compulsion to try and survive, like I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. Um, or it's an innate behavior, which is, you know, every species has an innate drive to survive. And that's why they're still here. There's not, the second one is the, the impulse or the compulsion to procreate. And obviously, um, you surviving isn't going to do anything for your species if you can't procreate. And so those are the two main drives in all animals. And then we just studied about all the little like different species, why they do what they do. Is there truly altruism in the animal kingdom? Um, if the maternal instinct like it putting like the the mother putting her life on the line for her child and at what level that breaks down is very interesting. And so within survival, there are the trying to the compulsion to have to consume food and water and to find shelter. And then the compulsion to um, actually have territorial rights or access to these resources. And food and water are obvious, and shelter is going to be, obviously, shelter from the elements, but also shelter from those that other animals or plants or whatever diseases that would want to take your life. And so if you can have access to those, it's almost the same, it's synonymous with actually the, you know, the thirst impulse. So you're trying to secure the access to the resources and you're also trying to get them. And then on the other end is the, of the, this part of the survival is the energy output. So that means that you don't want to do any more than you have to do. And so what you'll see is that in cold blooded animals, it did, they don't move a lot because they can't control their metabolism. They, they can't control their body temperature. So sometimes they can move quickly and sometimes they can't, depending on how warm their body is. And so they need the environment to actually regulate their temperature. And so for the cold-blooded animal, like the amphibian and the reptile and the fish, um, being in a stable uh, temperature gradient is the most important thing. It's more important than it is to, to maintain food. That's why you don't see a lot of cold-blooded animals in Arctic regions. Uh, now, in the water, it's different. Fish are you know, odd creatures. 
but um, you don't see a lot of amphibians in the Arctic, right? Or reptiles. They're mostly in the tropical areas where the temperature is very stable. Now, the uh, but warm-blooded animals like birds and mammals, eating and drinking is very, very important because we have, we're warm-blooded, so we can kind of go wherever we want to because our body will maintain our body temperature through metabolism. But we have to have food so that we can have a metabolism because we'll starve very quickly. Whereas a shark, you know, it eats once a month and then, you know, it just kind of coasts around in the water the rest of the time. And um, so th what you'll find is, is that there's um, warm-blooded animals uh, tend to be more territorial for those resources specifically. Now, cold-blooded animals seem to be territorial more for the um, for rights to um, potential mates. But what you'll see is that in um, warm-blooded animals will, everything they do will be mitigated about how much energy output they give versus how much food they can maintain. So there's this one type of crow that lives on the coasts of, I think, Oregon, Washington, and they their main diet is shellfish. And so they'll just kind of hang out on the coast, and when the water recedes, they'll run out and see if they can get a shellfish before it sinks down into the sand. Then they'll grab it. If it's like a scallop, maybe or a clam, they can smash it with a rock. They'll just grab a rock with your bill and keep whacking at it. But some things that are denser, like oysters, and so there's no way they can break through that. So what they'll do is they'll fly up really high with the oyster, and then they'll drop it on a rock, and it'll crack it, and then they can see if they can get in. Well, here's the thing is that the crow, crows display quite a bit of intelligence when it comes to figuring things out. And so they're trying to get into this oyster, but obviously they don't want to fly any higher than they need to because they're, they're burning energy to try and get energy. And what's the trade-off? So they're not going to fly so high. Like, you know, they're not going to fly 10,000 feet up and try and drop this oyster. Second, you know, but obviously the other thing is, is that they may not find it and or it'll bounce in the water or some other little critter like a crab will come and grab it. And so they, they only fly as high as they absolutely need to. Well, there's still quite a bit of precariousness. Will they even hit the rock? They got to be super, you know, what was it in world war two? The, the bombers had a hardest time hitting their targets when they dropped it from elevation. And so they try to fly as low as possible, which made, made their, you know, their whole bombing raid more dangerous. So it's difficult when you're at height and you're moving to drop something and it actually hit the spot that you intend it to. And, uh, you know, not just because you, you can't gauge right, because the wind will carry it a, a, a distance. So what happened was they ended up going over to parking lots and dropping their oysters onto the asphalt. There's obviously a lot of reasons that, that was superior. One, it's flat, so it's not going to bounce some weird way. Secondly, it's black, and so they can see the contrast. It's really easy to find it. And um, third of all, it covers a wide space. There's not just a small rock they're trying to hit. They can hit it any given area. Well, it was funny because they said that they were having a heck of a time with insurance policies because they were dinging cars. They were putting dents in cars. Now, it's not necessary. It's hard to tell whether or not the, the crows didn't know because I'm sure that it was much less likely to 
crack a shell if it hit a if it hit metal on a car than it would the asphalt. But obviously the it's the cars are moving, the wind's blowing, whatever, and so they they this intelligence of of the uh, of these crows is showing that they're going to get a certain amount of food from this shellfish, but it's is it worth it to do? And so they're trying to find the most efficient way to crack these shells. And sometimes they would hit cars. So the, anyway, that's what was a funny story I remember. So that all animals you see do that, and you'll see like some animals have even adapted to move more slowly. And it's usually animals that live in a region that they don't have any natural predators. And um, or they've made it probably from human intervention where they've or they've they're living in a national park, you know, where humans can't get to them, I guess. But it's like, um, for example, a koala bear moves very slow and it just chews on like bamboo. And the. Um, if that's why if you have a wildfire, it's the koalas that get fried, like the, the rabbits can run away, the kangaroos can get away. The dingoes can get away, but the poor little koalas, you know, they get sizzled. And so, but the thing is, is that they don't have to eat near as much as, say, another varmint their size that move much quicker because they, their energy output is so much lower that their ability to maintain their body temperature is, is much easier. And like the three-toed sloth is another one in like Central South America. Those things are weird. I've never seen one in real life, but I've watched videos and it's almost like you can walk right up to them and they just turn their head really slow and look at you. And it's unnerving because you're like, it's got these really long claws. And so you think that it's some, you know, murder and it could just slash your throat, but it can't move that quick. It's kind of like a praying mantis. You've ever seen, if you ever tried to pick up a praying mantis, sometimes they don't even care. They'll just hop right up on your hand and you're like, ugh. That's and it'll like turn its big eyes and look at you like an alien. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of freaky. But these uh, three-toed sloths, they survive simply because they move so slow and they don't need to eat that much. I actually had a I have a friend and uh, lives in Costa Rica and he posted on Facebook that there was a a, a baby sloth had fallen. And it was laying in the road and it, it was, I guess it was okay. I'm not sure it was living. And the mom, they could see her in the limb right above, but she, she couldn't go down and get, get her baby because she moved so slow. And so eventually, I guess she would have tried, but it would have been like two days before she could got it. And so they rigged up the little rope in a bucket and wheeled the thing up to her. And it was, it was actually precious because the um it she just slowly stuck her arm down into the bucket and then the the baby just slowly grabbed a hold of her shoulder and she just pulled it onto her back and you know there it was a mother and child reunited and uh much more quickly than would have happened in in the natural so you know that that's the thing is that that's survival of the human I mean, it's the survival of the animal. And, you know, obviously humans are the same way. And the um, the issue here is, is that a lot of what you would say traditional roles and jobs that humans have, have become blurred. And because we're in this modern or postmodern society where we have easy access 
to all the survival things. We have easy access to food and water for sure. And most people have easy access to shelter. I mean, even the homeless, I mean, they, it's amazing. The, the homeless, they, they thrive because there's so many structures that they can remain safe and they understand this is where you go and this is where you don't go. And as far as that's concerned, the, the things that end up being the trip hazards for those in the Western world or the modern world end up being those things that would be natural compulsions for survival. And so you're going to end up with situations that the easiest and cheapest things to produce are those things that end up harming us, like carbohydrates, sugar, um, uh, fats that are you know you can keep preserved in containers for long periods of time and these things are easy to produce and they're also cheap and so we have this compulsion to keep eating and maintaining resources for these foods and naturally that would be a positive thing because you see on our tongue we have different receptors and these are survival receptors there's like a sweet receptor and it's on the tip of our tongue so we can tell something sweet and we know right away it's pleasant. Sweetness is pleasant to us. And if you're in nature, sweetness, you only get access to things that are sweet and very seasonal and short. Unless you live in the in the tropics where fruit you know bears all year long. But even then, it it may be you it's very rare that you're gonna have a tree that's just producing fruit all year long. It'll, there'll be a, a time and a season for it. But if you live in a temperate zone or otherwise, then you only have maybe two to three months where you have access to sweet foods and they're full of nutrition. They're full of vitamins and minerals, phytonutrients, micronutrients, and macronutrients. So they're like sustaining for a lot of animals, these fruits, and you want to fatten up on them when you can. The problem is, is that when you go to a grocery store, those fruits are available all year long. And here's the crazy thing is that the level of sweetness will sabotage, will sabotage us. Okay. So here's an example. If I went to a regular grocery store, I would never get strawberries unless they were like 10 pounds for a buck. And then I would weed through them maybe if I had the time. But in general, I'm either going to go to a farmer's market or I'm going to go pick the strawberries myself because the the richness and the sweetness of these farmer market and um, freshly picked strawberries is much, much higher. It's like it, it, if you buy a peach or a strawberry from a grocery store, it's like water. It, it has any hardly any flavor or sweetness to it. So the, the natural sweetness that I know that I'm going for will sabotage me from ever even wanting these other type of fruits, which is positive. Probably there's more nutrition in these uh, more less manufactured type of fruits. But here's where it trips us up. Candy. Well, it only takes a couple of Jolly Ranchers or Skittles to realize that the intensity of eating those is much higher than eating fruit. Like, Why would I want a cantaloupe when I have a Starburst? I mean, that's actually a reasonable question, especially as a kid. Because the intensity of the sweetness and that tartness that we're looking for is so much stronger in this candy. And so we end up through these 
I don't know what you would call it, unnatural forms of food sabotaging a survival instinct. Well, you know, you have your salt too, and you're looking for just the right amount of saltiness because we like salty flavors. But if it's too salty, we don't like it. And if something's too salty, it's probably not good for you. It's spoiled, maybe. And then obviously we have on our the back of our tongue, we have a, a bitter sensor. And the bitter sensor is great because it, it'll identify whether or not something's toxic or poisonous. And um, if it's a high alkaloid, um, then it's bitter. And that's why a lot of kids don't like vegetables because there's they're so alkaline that they taste bitter. And, and so their taste buds are so concentrated that um, it tastes even more bitter than it does to an adult. And so that's why, you know, they don't like it. But it's good. It's there right at the back of the throat. So if you eat something that's potentially poisonous, you can gag or spit it out. And, and it's important because there are certain, there are even certain things that are edible at certain times of the year. But if you eat them in the wrong season, then they're poisonous. But because they have a bitter flavor when they are, then we can avoid them. So again, that adds to the whole aspect of these natural survival parts of our body and instincts will sabotage us in a modern world because the ability to get simple carbohydrates and lots of them, which normally you would want to load up on in a hunter gatherer society. Well, you just, they're the cheapest ones, the fast foods, the, you know, the, the rice and the, the corn, the breads, the pastas, those are super, super inexpensive and you can eat a lot of them. And that's the problem. Well, also, if bitter foods, um, if I can eat foods that don't have any bitterness at all, then I'll do it. And that actually dumbs down my contrast of, uh, of, of flavors. So if I'm, I guess you might say, have a cultured tongue, then I probably can handle a lot of things that are more alkaline because I've learned to appreciate the nuances of their flavor. I guess it would be like beer or wine would be a, a clear example of they got a really bitter flavor. But um, if, if you understand the different notes and, and stuff, oh, coffee would be a great example, super bitter. And it's an alkaloid and it would be poisonous because it gets in your body and in your liver and it demands energy to burn through them. So in a survival situation, coffee would be terrible to, to take in, to consume. Because Oh, there was a book, Into the Wild. Uh, it was made into a movie about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, where this, this kid, well, he wasn't a kid. He was early 20s, and he just decided he wanted to survive. And he, so he went up into Alaska, into Denali National Park, and he just tried to live off 20 pounds of rice. And he bought a 22 uh, caliber rifle with him. And he just went through the, the summer and all the animals in that region just left that area because there wasn't enough for them to forage. There were just like trees. And so he couldn't get any food and the um, ice had melted and the river was rushing and he couldn't ford the river because it would it was so deep and so running so hard. So he was stuck. And so he was living off of just roots and, and like plants, small plants, and he'd run out of his rice. So he was starving, but he was maintaining simply because he was, he had had a book and he knew what to eat and what not to eat. Well, the problem was, is that 
Um, the book told him things were safe to eat, but that was only in the in the spring when he was digging them up, eating the roots. And throughout the summer, they started producing these seeds, and he started to eat the roots and the seeds. Well, the problem was is the seeds were full of alkaloids, and and even though they probably tasted bitter to him, he was he was starving, he was hungry, so he just kept eating them, and he thought, well, they're safe to eat because they're in the book. The problem was is that. caffeine is an alkaloid and whatever the substance that was in the seed got into his liver and just demanded energy. And and he had to actually consume more food to burn up these alkaloids to leave his body. And that's what happens with caffeine. And the, but that was the thing that did him in um, that, that made him starve more quickly. And so he couldn't actually maintain himself because his metabolism was too high. And that's anyway, that's just a side point, but that's the shows you why coffee's bitter. It's actually somewhat toxic to our, to our body. If we don't actually consume enough food to burn it off, which, you know, clearly we can easily do. We could easily do it with the sugar and the cream we add to the coffee. <laughs> but anyway, that's a point I'm belaboring the point of the way our tongue is designed to keep us alive. But in our modern society with our manufactured food, it ends up sabotaging us because we overconsume these foods that are simple and we avoid the things that are healthy because, uh, you know, broccoli is not that palatable. Um, celery, I don't like celery. It's not that palatable. It's very alkaline flavor. And so we try to avoid those things, especially kids, we avoid them. All right. So moving along, Matt, you're really burning it up here. That's part of our survival. And that's why we have this compulsion to uh, overeat because all animals have the compulsion to overeat. And so the other, the other part of this is procreation. Now there's the simple act of like copulation or fertilization where animals have a drive to do that, but it seems very seasonal. And in fact, it is very seasonal. And within animals, there seems to be a time when the females are um, ovulating and they go into heat and they produce a, a, a chemical in an aroma or a pheromone that the males of their species can pick up. And there doesn't ever seem to be a time where the males, like they want to get busy with the females unless they're producing this pheromone. And then they just absolutely lose their minds. And they, they, all their survival mechanisms they subside and they're overpowered by this, this, this desire to fertilize or copulate. Right. And so we, if you look, I mean, people fix their animals. Now their pets, they get, they go and they get them neutered or spayed. And that's, that's great. But where I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, it was, yeah, a lot of people would get their animals neutered and spayed, but a lot wouldn't. And nobody kept them locked up. There was no leash law. Everybody's dogs and cats just ran amok. And so, you know, it was just clear if you didn't, if you had, the, you know, a female dog and you didn't, you didn't get her spayed, then she was going to end up with the litter and you wouldn't know who the father was until the, she had, and you're like, Oh, that looks like so-and-so's dog down the street. It would be like one of those things. Well, Oh, he had a next door neighbor, you know, he lived off the hill and he had dogs and I think he was just tired of how many, he had like, I don't know, 14 beagles. It was ridiculous. 
and he was just tired of his having more puppies, but he didn't want to pay to get the animal fixed. So he decided that when she was in heat, he would just put her in a cage. And, and then when she was out of heat, he would just take her out of the cage. Well, unfortunately, some little Chihuahuan uh, slick-coated Houdini got in there and more puppies. And, and so he's like, oh, man. Okay, next time I know what I'll do. I'll lock the, I'll put her in the cage and then I'll lock her in the barn. Didn't matter. They would dig under the ground and get in there. Houdini again, more puppies. And so then finally, he still, you know, this is the stubborn Appalachian, right? This guy was not going to go down easy. He wasn't going to get the, the poor animal spayed. He was going to take it to the extreme. And unfortunately, guys, I'm out of time, so I have to wrap up this story. But it's actually one of the more entertaining parts of of what my neighbors have done. Um, the the levels that he goes to to make sure this he didn't end up with more puppies. Um, but I'll tell that story on the next one. This will be part one. The next one will be part two of the human divinity. This has been Anchor Streets and Dreams. Thank you.